everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of the Skilled America podcast, brought to you by National Skills Coalition. I'm your host, Rachel Unruh, Chief of External Affairs at NSC. Skilled America is a brand new podcast series devoted to the policies, politics, and people driving the discussion on skills in today's economy. We recorded our first episode live at the 2020 Skills Summit in Washington, D.C., exploring how skills advocacy is making its way into the conversation around the 2020 election and the future of workforce development. We'll take a peek into the quiet before the storm that was the Iowa caucuses, talk to our very own candidate whisperer, Steve Oval, and hear from a truly distinguished panel, including Stephanie Martinez-Ruckman of the National League of Cities, Tracy Scott of the National Urban League, and Brian Tremail of the Associated General Contractors of America. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Skilled America podcast presented by National Skills Coalition. I am Rachel Unruh. I'm the Chief of External Affairs at National Skills Coalition, and Skilled America is a new podcast series devoted to the policies, politics, and people driving the discussion on skills in today's economy. And we're so excited to be recording our very first episode live here at the 2020 Skills Summit. So how is everybody doing? That's really good. In it for skills, all right. Well, we have a great show today exploring skills and the 2020 election cycle. Um, we're going to have National Skills Coalition's own Ayobami Olubamiga reporting from the Iowa caucuses. Um, he's going to be talking to reporters on the ground and giving us a look at brand new public opinion polling that we've done on skills training in Iowa. And then a little later, we're going to hear from Steve Oval, who's a member of the Board of Trustees of Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And Steve has been crisscrossing the state, putting a lot of miles on his car, talking to the Democratic primary candidates about skills, and we're going to hear about that as well. But first, I want to introduce our panelists for today's show. First, we have Stephanie Martinez-Ruckman, who's the Legislative Director for Human Development at the National League of Cities. <laughs> Next to Stephanie is Tracy Scott, the Vice President of Workforce Development at the National Urban League and a Skills Summit veteran. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, Brian Termail, who's the Vice President for Public Affairs and Strategic Initiatives at the Associated General Contractors of America. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for being here. So my first question for our panel, obviously there's some big decisions made in elections, including who's going to lead the country. Um, but elections are also um, an important kind of groundwork for this country because it's where the priorities are established for whoever's going to lead the country for the next four years. And in that way, a lot of groups with a lot of different interests use the election cycle as a way to really lift up their issues that they care about, including issues like skills training. Each one of you represents very different constituencies. Let's talk about that first. Who are the constituencies you represent outside the Beltway, and where does skills training fit into that mission and to serving that constituency? So Stephanie, let's start with you. Sure, so we represent cities. So 19,000 cities, towns, and villages across the country, which is about 200 million people. Um, so as you might imagine, cities care about a lot of things. If you look at our policy, it's everything from A to Z. So when we really think about the election and sort of how we're elevating our issues, which issues are we elevating and sort of what does that look like? So we brought together a group of about 30 local officials, mayors, and council members so that they could tell us what are the issues that resonate the most for you. Um, I was very pleased that creating a skilled workforce was one of those four. Um, you know, infrastructure is obviously key for cities, but workforce is a part of that. And so our sort of job then is sort of elevating that to the candidates. So we have sort of a 100-day agenda for the candidates um, that is uh, around those four issue areas. All right. So Tracy, tell us about the Urban League, who you represent outside of Washington, and why skills training matters. Thank you for that. Good morning, everybody. Uh, the National Urban League is uh, one of the oldest and largest civil rights organizations in the United States. The Urban League movement is representative of 90 different affiliates. We're in 90 markets across the United States. 
And although we serve anyone and everyone who comes to our door seeking support or services, we primarily focus in on the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. Jobs has been the central point of the Urban League movement. Back in 2013, we invested $100 million through our Rebuild America initiative. And we just looked at the past 15 years, we found that we've helped a quarter million individuals find jobs. And to put that on scale, that is six times the number if you filled up Nat Stadium, which I passed this morning, and that's four times the number of people who attended uh, last Sunday's Super Bowl. That's, that's great. All right, so Brian, how about AGC? So we're the uh, trade association that represents the commercial construction industry. So our members build everything you can think of except for single family homes. So hotels, airports, roads, Nat Stadium, uh, uh, anything that requires a hard hat that isn't sort of a housing development like Meandering Muse, our guys are building. Uh, we survey our members twice a year. We do a specific workforce survey every summer. And then at the end of the year, we do a sort of an outlook, you know, ask our members what they think the next year is going to be like. And what they consistently tell us, and they've been telling this since about 2013, is that their top worry is the lack of available qualified workers to hire. So our guys have a lot of work, and they don't have enough workers to do the work. Uh, we're in a good, strong economy. Uh, we've got record low unemployment. Uh, and we've got a lot of construction firms that would employ a lot more folks around the country if they could simply find them. Uh, and I think a big part of that, and we'll get into this, is, is really skills training and, and exposing lots of young adults and other Americans to the fact that construction ought to be on the career menu. And I think one of the things that's really interesting here, and this is what's, I think, great about the Skills Summit here every year, is that there's a lot of different constituencies represented on this stage and in this room, and skills training is one particular place where there's an overlap in interest. There are so many stakeholders who have a stake in skills training. But I want to shift now to talking about how and where skills training is or isn't coming up in the election cycle. Um, but to help inform that conversation, let's go to NSC's press secretary, Ayobami Ulubamiga, who has spent the weekend at the Media Filing Center in Des Moines with reporters from around the country and the world who are covering the first primary of the election cycle, the Iowa caucus. So he's been sharing NSC's brand new polling on how likely caucus voters think about skills training and what impact that has in their decision making. So let's go to Ayobami now. Hey, Skill Summit. We're here in Des Moines, Iowa at the Community Choice Credit Union Convention Center for the Iowa Caucus Media Filing Center. Everything has been building up to this. Months of rallies, dozens of debates, forums, town halls, and millions spent on political ads. The Iowa caucus is the first real test of the 2020 presidential campaign calendar. National Skills Coalition wanted to get a closer look at how media covers such a massive event. So we came right to the epicenter, Des Moines, Iowa. So we got a little snow here in Des Moines this week, but it hasn't slowed anybody down. Because when you're first in the nation, you can't afford to be late. The Filing Center is the Iowa headquarters for all the major networks and news outlets from across the country, as well as teams of reporters from around the globe. We arrived bright and early on Friday. But things hadn't quite hit a fever pitch. But there was no doubt business was about to pick up. We have set up this filing center so that media from all over the world, more than 2,600 national and international media, can be here in one place. They will have the opportunity to have the first look at the results on caucus night. Iowa takes our first in the nation caucus responsibility very seriously, and we're proud of it. This is a great opportunity for our region and our state to really tell our story on a national and international stage. Even though our stay in Iowa would be brief, we didn't just come to observe. We wanted to make an impact as well. Not much has been said about skills training on the biggest stages this cycle, but it remains one of the most popular bipartisan issues in America today. So while we had the world's media all in one place, we figured we'd make it easy for them. Every media member who's here covering the Iowa caucuses will receive a package just like this. It includes swag, snacks, Mm. and important polling information from National Skills Coalition. Our latest poll asked 500 likely Democratic caucus goers what they think about skills training, how it's going to affect their vote come Monday on caucus night, 
and the presidential election in general. So 70% of those polled said they would be more likely to back a candidate who supports increasing government funding for skill strength. And that includes 55% of undecided voters. An overwhelming majority, 92%, agree that greater investments in skills training would help Iowans upgrade their skills to keep pace with new technology. 93% support job retraining for new technology that fights climate change and moves the country to clean, renewable energy. And 91% support providing skills retraining to any worker who loses their job because of automation, digitalization, and AI at no cost to the worker. The biggest issues this campaign season, including ones hugely important to Iowans, like climate change and the future of work, are dependent on legislation that increases investments in skills and technical training to prepare America's workers for the 21st century economy. So that's it for NSC from Des Moines. But don't worry, this won't be the last time you hear about skills on the campaign trail in 2020. My name is Ayabami Olubemiga, now back to D.C. and the 2020 Skills Summit. Here for Ayobami. Thank you, Ayobami. Um, so I want to throw it back to you guys after that great segment. Obviously, this was just about Iowa, and we'll talk about other voters later in the podcast. But given the importance of these issues to Iowa voters that we heard in the polling that Ayobami talked about, why do you think we've heard so little from candidates so far on this issue? And more importantly, if candidates were to talk about this on the campaign trail, how would they talk about it in a way that actually resonates with your constituency? Um, so Brian, we'll start with you this time. Sure, thank you. And um, you know, from our point of view, you know, what we're interested in having candidates talk about is the kind of skills training that, that leads folks into you know, high-paying construction careers, right? Most of which don't require a college degree. And I think one of the challenges when you talk about what the candidates are talking about sort of, you know, when they're in debates or in the media and their advertisements or when they're sort of out campaigning is that for the last 30 or 40 years, culturally, we've really put an enormous emphasis on telling every young adult that, look, you got to go to college, you got to get an office job, you got to be part of the thinking economy, right? And, and so politicians are generally in the business of telling people what they want to hear, not what they don't want to hear. And culturally, we, you know, we want... If you're aspirational, then that aspiration needs to be sort of exercised through going to college and sort of getting that office job. And, and look, I went to college, I have an office job, things are going well. But what we're missing in, in those conversations is the fact that there are a lot of different career paths that people can take. And that not all of those paths lead to a four-year degree and sort of an office job, sort of working in a fluorescent-lit cube farm, right? That you can actually be very successful and have a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle uh, by you, you just, for example, going into construction and pursuing those careers. So you, you end up, because culturally we've shifted away, you've got a lot of politicians in, in sort of these strange situations where you've got politicians in a room full of sort of unionized craft workers talking about their, their campaign pledge to get everyone into college, right? You know, a room full of folks who make a good living and hadn't gone through college, and we're going to talk about how we're going to get everyone into college. And they're paying unions lip service in the sense that they're talking about, hey, those of you that are still here, we're going to try and get more folks into organized labor. And there are lots of worthwhile proposals on that. But, but we're, we're sort of had this disconnect. Uh, and, and I think that we're not ready to criticize the politicians. We think they're reflecting where popular culture is. And this gets into this broader conversation of how do we change perceptions about what is actually success in this country and what are the career paths that people ought to look at which goes to skills training because it, it really signals that there are more options out there. Yeah, and I think you know, that one of the things that uh, we saw reflected at National Skills Coalition early on in our Voices for Skills campaign, we were in Michigan doing focus groups, and we were starting to hear some frustration actually from voters about that sort of there's only one pathway mentality and feeling like, you know, particularly if they were looking to change careers or wanting to get a better job, that, you know, a four-year degree wasn't necessarily what they were looking for. Stephanie, how about you? Why do you think we've heard so little? And for the cities you work with, what would resonate if a candidate were to talk about skills training? 
Sure. Well, I sort of share Brian's frustration in that we're not talking about the skills piece, we're talking about the jobs piece, the sort of how are you connecting that. So our cities, there's, you know, talking about 19,000, they're not just urban, they're rural, they're urban, they're large, they're small. Our smallest city has five residents in West Virginia and our largest is New York City. So you might imagine the jobs of the mayors present themselves differently in each of those communities, but everyone is thinking about what is the economic competitiveness of our community? How are we attracting jobs and how are we making sure that our residents can connect to those jobs. I think, you know, that's sort of what's underlying what is really important for city leaders, right? How are they thinking about their community as a whole and making all of those connections? What are the tools in their toolbox to sort of make that happen? So I think candidates really need to make that connection between the, you know, it's not just about attracting businesses and having jobs, because if you can't put people in those jobs and if you don't have the skilled workers to do that, then you just have jobs that are unfilled. And so making sure that people who already have jobs who need to be reskilled or people who aren't in the workforce and need to connect to those are there. And I think a lot about how we think about it and we talk about it to the candidates and hoping that they talk back to us about it mm -hmm. is that um, and you can't just talk about roads without talking about the workers who are gonna do it. We know we already have a shortage in nearly every sector in the infrastructure space. Um, so how do we talk about that and how are we attracting new people to do that work? Because by the way, you could be a water and wastewater utility worker and make more than probably everyone in this room. And so how do you talk about those jobs and make people want to and desire to do them? Yeah. All right. So Tracy, what would it look like for a candidate to talk about skills training in a way that resonates for the Urban League? Right. Well, uh, I'm echoing my co-panelists here. Um, it's a lot of the same things. But, but look, you don't really have to look really deep and hard to find the overarching issues that impact African Americans in the community. Um, if you look at the unemployment rate, yes, we, we tout that it's rather low, but for African Americans, it's consistently been twice that of their white counterparts. Currently, the unemployment rate stands at 3.2% for white workers, and for African Americans, it's currently at 54 And so um, you have to ask that question, why are the, those two where, the way they are? If you look at um, uh, African-American women are the number one uh, creators of new businesses in America, uh, successful businesses, but they only receive 0.1% or less than 1% of venture capital backing. If you talk about re-entry, uh, we have citizens, thank God, we're seeing changes in justice reform, so we're seeing low-level ex-offenders who are re removed from their communities, coming repatriating back into their communities, many of whom became enrolled or uh, involved in the justice and the correction system because they didn't have skills or they had little skills. They likely received no skills or little skills during their incarceration. So they're returning to their communities. If we think about what happened back in November in Oklahoma, the state release more than 600 low-level offenders in their community. Where are they going to go to get the skills that they've missed? Where are they going to go to learn how to write a resume, how to get interview skills? I would be remiss if I didn't talk about youth unemployment. For African Americans, it stands at 32%, I believe it is, as opposed to their white counterparts, and that's at 19%. So we have a long way to go. But note, I've pretty much laid out black versus white. These are not inclusive. They're not exclusive. It is everybody in between. It is whites, low income whites are having these exact same issues. So to answer your question, why aren't people talking about it? To me, it's absolutely unconscionable because we have, when we have uh, most Americans having depressed wages, people are losing their work-based um, incentives or benefits. This is no longer a conversation about how do we protect the middle class. This is a conversation and a passion to keep people out of poverty. So this is a really important issue to a lot of groups, a lot of constituencies, and we actually know it's important to a lot of voters, not just in Iowa. And so the numbers we heard from Iobami about Iowa, those are pretty clear. I mean, those are astounding levels of support, but it's really not just in Iowa where we see that. So I wanna take a quick look at um, what we found from two national polls that we did at National Skills Coalition. One was of likely 2020 voters nationally. The other poll was of small and mid-sized business leaders nationally. And what we found, first of all, was that 93% of voters support increasing investment in skills and technical training. And what's even more interesting is that support stayed really high even when we framed the polling question as government funding. Those words that sometimes scare people off, the, the support was still at 85% support. And that cuts across party lines. 
at a time when there is so much dividing the parties, this is something that really we see consistent support. 90% for Democrats, 82% for independents, 80% for Republicans. These are levels of support that other issues would just really like to see, and we have this for skills training. There's true, true support among the electorate. That support, it's consistently high across racial groups. 90% of African American voters, 90% of Asian American voters, 85% of white voters, and 81% of Hispanic voters support more government funding for skills training. So in addition to the general election voters, we looked at these small and mid-sized business leaders. And even there still, we found 79% of them wanted to see more, again, framed as government funding for skills training to help match the investments that they're making in their workforce. What's important about this issue, though, and this is why I think those of us who are really passionate about skills training are, are a little bit frustrated by how little we've been hearing in this election, is that this isn't just a popular issue among the voting public, it's actually driving behavior in terms of who they're likely to support as a, as a candidate. Um, and that margin nationally is a 50-point margin. Voters are more likely to support a candidate who makes skills training a priority. That, that margin is highest for African-American voters who by a 65% margin, so 75% more likely, 10% less likely, to support a candidate who makes skills training a priority. The margin's 51% for Asian-American voters, 49% for white voters, and 46% for Hispanic voters. So for candidates who wanted to look at how to distinguish themselves from each other, skills training is just a huge opportunity to speak to a lot of different parts of the electorate, yet we haven't really heard that. Obviously, this is an important issue nationally, in communities around the country, to voters across the board. So let's talk about concretely, because we're all here to talk about public policy and systems change. What would it look like for a candidate to prioritize skills training to your organization? So what policies specifically would you like to see them addressing um, in making this a priority? So Tracy, let's start with you this time. Sure, I'd like to first frame this on um, the missed opportunity because of the caucuses that occur and in the order that they do occur. And I think that will frame up my answer to it, right? So if we look at Iowa happened last night, we're on our way to New Hampshire, following New Hampshire and Nevada, and then there's South Carolina. Those are the four that occur before Super Tuesday. If you juxtaposition that uh, against the African-American population, you see that in uh, Iowa they represent 3% of the population, New Hampshire 1% of the population, Nevada 8% of the population. And it's not until you get to South Carolina where African-Americans represent 28% of the population that actually black issues naturally will come to bear. But it's really Super Tuesday when black issues come to bear. So if candidates are not intentional about paying attention to these issues, they miss an important opportunity to get their message out to build right relationships with, um, with their communities. It helps make candidates stand out when we think about what's important for their community. And we're seeing this empirically happen. There's an article that came out on Saturday uh, through NBC News where black Iowan women said that they were considering not participating in the caucus at all. And they said number one is because they didn't know who the candidates were. And that's because the candidates didn't bother coming to their communities. Mm -hmm. And so if candidates or campaigns are waiting until later in the caucuses and they're waiting until Super Tuesday, they run the risk of talking about issues that are important to the African American community as if the African-American vote, uh, votes and what's important to that community is a monolith. As we all know, and that's regardless of how you identify, issues in middle America are going to be different than Southern America. They're going to be different on the East and in the West itself. And so we, have, we are asking questions of what is the racial makeup of, uh, of campaign staff Who's in leadership? Because it would be those individuals that will help inform candidates when they need to be, where they need to be. They, it's informing where resources need to go, how many boots are on the ground, how many leaflets to pass out, when and where town hall meetings should occur, what questions to ask to encourage conversation for people to learn about one another. So we've missed this opportunity for, um, for folks to really get a sense of what's happening. Now, if there are um, issues that 
I think would be helpful for candidates to focus in on if they were to start focusing themselves. Uh, it's getting behind re-entry. That's important. Uh, supporting the expansion of apprenticeships. That is important. We have a changing, an emerging change to the workforce. Get involved and expand the tech sector itself in tech training. And then finally, restore the funding for WIOA. In fiscal year 2019, there was a $2 million reduction to the Department of Labor to appropriations to WIOA. Now is not the time to disinvest in skills development. Now is the time that we need to double down, not when companies are going looking for skilled worker, not when there are people are looking for good paying jobs and good wages. Um, we need to really move forward and double down on that process. And Brian, what about for AGC? What would you specifically like to hear the candidates talking about from a policy perspective? There are a couple of policies that we would really like to see candidates talk about. Um, I think our top line one is funding for career and technical education. We used to call it vocational education, right? Career and technical education, CTE. Uh, we've called for a doubling of funding for CTE over the next five years, which maybe is a push, but w one of the things that we talk a lot about is, is the sort of inherent college bias that, that exists in federal funding formulas. And the amount of money that goes to sort of traditional sort of high school to four-year college education is, is just far eclipses what we're investing in career and technical education. And, and that serves two purposes for our, and I think many, of your, many other sort of employers' points of view. One, obviously, is CTE provides sort of essential skills training, especially at the high school and community college and college level, that provides workers with a kind of base that, that employers are looking for of skills. But the other function it serves, which I think is absolutely essential, is it signals to students, to young adults, to their families, to their caregivers that, hey, these kinds of career choices are on the menu. Right? If we don't talk about them at high school, if we don't talk about them at community colleges, then why do we expect people to follow those career choices? Right? So if you go through high school and you're never exposed to the fact that you can make 10% more than the average non-farm job working in construction, that you can you take the family to SeaWorld on vacation being an equipment operator every year, then, then you're never going to think about construction as an opportunity, which is why so many of our workers are, uh, are sort of second, third, fourth generation construction workers, because they learn about it from their family. And this will actually help us with we, I'll just be candid, we have a diversity challenge in the construction industry. I think it's 12% of the workforce is African-American, 6% of the construction workforce is African-American. We want to do more. Our, our, our members are desperate to find workers. And, you know, we, you know, we just have to find a way to sort of reach those communities. And at the same time, we have to find a way to expose folks in those communities to the fact that construction's on the menu. When our members built the new uh, Red Wing Stadium, the Little Caesars Arena in Detroit, uh, the, the firms running the, the project had dozens of job fairs, some of which no one ever came to, hmm. right? I mean, these union construction jobs, they pay a great wage. They've got incredible benefits, but there's this disconnect that I think if we put more money into, we think if we put more money into CTE training, sorry, I'm preaching a little bit, but we think that we would expose, uh, we think we would get more people sort of considering these options. Uh, and, and then beyond that, uh, apprenticeship, absolutely. We need to make apprenticeship easier. And while this administration has made a lot of noise about making apprenticeships easier, their industry-regulated apprenticeship program, uh, A, excludes construction, which is a bit of a concern for us, but B, even if it didn't exclude construction, the way it's structured, uh, our worry is it would create sort of the second-tier apprenticeship program that wouldn't be anywhere near in quality to what we've got already in place uh, with open shop and labor partners around the country, right? We need the same standards, we need the same funding, we need the same benefits for employers, and we don't have that with the IRAP, so the Industry Regular Apprenticeship Program. And then we, we need, and, and this is where leadership counts, we need to signal and we need to lead folks to the fact that there are more career paths out there than just this four-year degree and the office job. And, and I, I might get in trouble for this one, but we've got one candidate who has done more to talk about not necessarily the actions haven't necessarily backed up the talking, but to talk about the fact that there is integrity and dignity and success in a career path that doesn't necessarily include college, and, and that's the President of the United States, uh, who has, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. He, and the administration is getting ready to launch, you know, sort of this nationwide public service campaign, uh, you know, uh, that there are more career choices out there than just going through college. And, and the, in part, it's politics, right? He, he gets that. The reason Trump gets that, you know, he won Michigan and Wisconsin and all these places is because, a you know, the, the, largely because of craft workers, right? So Ohio, we would like to see a nationwide leadership campaign. We'd love it just to focus on construction, but we'll take just focus on the fact that there are sort of many career paths in life so that we can signal to young adults that 
if college doesn't feel right to you, if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean you're a failure. There are other options out there that lead to a successful, high paying, good, middle class or beyond life. And we ought to be preaching that from the highest levels. So funding, apprenticeships, and leadership. We'll, we'll, we'll stop there. How about that? Okay, great. Sorry. Um, so Stephanie, how about you? You guys have worked on this agenda. What policies are you wanting to hear? It's hard to follow these two. But anyway, um, I think a lot of our challenges is sort of like connecting the rhetoric of Washington and sort of like the high level policies to sort of like the practice and reality sort of on the ground. I mean, if you read, I mean, how many candidates are we now? We're 10 Democrats, three Republicans. Yes, there are three Republicans. Um, you look at their policies, you're talking about really high level like create jobs okay create jobs but what does that mean and like how, and I said this earlier like how are you connecting to them and I think for city leaders they're really thinking about that because they have the people and the businesses on the ground so when our mayors and council members talk about creating a skilled workforce that's what they're talking about they want to make sure that everyone in their community is working and that they're not mm -hmm. you know and that they're sort of life-sustaining wages so that they can you know care for their children and they can care for their families multi-generational families sometimes in homes and sort of what does that look like so more money, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, you know, let's start with what we have at a foundation. We owe it needs to be fully funded. It probably needs more than fully funding. Mm -hmm. You know, CTE. We were really pleased to see that bill finally make it out of Congress. But now that needs money too. Um, these things need to be aligned so that, again, on the ground, people who are doing this work every day and connecting people to jobs, like, can do it more easily. Um, what else? Apprenticeships. Clearly, too, you know, we're all for apprenticeships expanding them, but making sure that they really work um, and so that everyone's at the table when we're talking about them. Um, Pell Grant flexibility so that, you know, you're not just talking about, as we were saying before, traditional two and four year college, but, you know, credential programs so that you can get that leg up and maybe you don't need to be there for that longer degree program. Um, and then, you know, we've done a lot of work with the National Skills Coalition on the BUILDS Act. Like, it's really important so that you're thinking about sort of those career pathways, getting people into middle school jobs, but thinking about those um, work supports. I mean, I'm here today. My daughter has a nearly 103 degree fever because I had people to help me come and take care of her so I could go and do my job. You know, not everyone has the luxury that I have to sort of make all those yeah. connections happen. Um, and that's transportation, it's childcare, it's sort of all of those things that make people able to go to work. Um, so we're looking for all of those things, um, lots of those things, because that's what it takes to sort of like keep it going. And I think hopefully the candidates sort of as we whittle ourselves down to fewer of them, we'll get into some of those, um, those specifics with our constituents so they can make informed decisions about who ends up on the ballot in November. Yeah, and I think a lot of folks in this room and in our podcast listening audience would love to hear the types of proposals that you have all mm -hmm. talked about um, coming from the mouths of the folks who are seeking their votes. So at National Skills Coalition, we did uh, an analysis actually of all the candidates currently running for president, both their policy platforms on their websites as well as mm -hmm. campaign speeches, the debates, um, major press efforts on their behalf, and we'll be releasing sort of a top line analysis of that. But one of the big things we found was that if skills training is coming up, it's coming up as part of larger policy issues. And that's something we talked about yesterday at the Skills Summit. It's something that I. Obama mentioned in the polling data from Iowa, which is that when it comes to things like climate change, when it comes to things like criminal justice reform, when it comes to things like healthcare reform, that's where we're hearing little bits and pieces from some of the candidates about the role that skills training will play in helping to achieve those larger objectives. And there's a range of policies that, that uh, candidates have been talking about as well related to college for all and sort of thinking about how to make a college for all agenda more inclusive. But next I want to talk about what our, uh, we call him our candidate whisperer, Steve Oval, trustee of Kirkwood Community College, who's been, as I mentioned earlier, crossing the state back and forth, talking to all the candidates, asking them what they're going to do about skills training, telling them how important it is to Iowans. And we're gonna hear from him in a moment. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Rachel here from Skilled America Podcast. I just wanna take a second to talk to you about, you guessed it, skills. 
Did you know 53% of today's jobs require some type of skills training, but not a four-year degree? But not enough people can access the training necessary to fill those in-demand jobs. That's why National Skills Coalition has launched Voices for Skills, a campaign of working people, students, teachers, parents, job seekers, and business leaders calling for a national commitment to increasing our investment in skills training. America's workers need access to skills to succeed in the modern economy. And they'll need access to further training to adapt to rapidly changing technology that will change the nature of work as we know it. Add your voice and become a voice for skills today. Sign up at voicesforskills.org. We're back. <laughs> This is the Skilled America podcast live from the 2020 Skills Summit with Stephanie Martinez-Ruckman, Tracy Scott, and Brian Tremail. All right, so we've been talking about <coughs> candidates and, uh, and how these organizations are thinking about what they want to hear from candidates. And next up, we're going to want to talk about how these organizations who we have here with us today are supporting their constituents in getting their message in front of candidates. But before we do that, we're going to go to Steve Oval in Iowa to hear about his experience talking to candidates across the state. Hi to everyone at the 2020 Skills Summit. I'm Jesse Leslie, National Skills Coalition's Managing Director of National Networks. Today I'm here with Steve Oval, who serves on the Board of Trustees of Kirkwood Community College here in Iowa. He's been on the campaign trail talking to 2020 presidential candidates about skills and is going to share a little bit with us about what it's like being in a state that's in the throes of presidential primary activity. So you've experienced many a presidential primary process here in Iowa. That's correct. How has the process, how has the experience been this year compared to other years? Well, I think the challenge this year is the number of candidates yeah. that, that we've uh, been dealing with. And, you know, for those individuals around the country that uh, don't experience uh, this unique opportunity that we have in Iowa, uh, these candidates have been with us well over a year now. We have retail access to these candidates. I mean, we're in small coffee shops and restaurants and have the opportunity to interact very closely. But it's been very different from the standpoint of the large number of candidates that we've mm -hmm. been dealing with. Just to give folks a sense, how many miles have you logged? How many candidates or candidate events have you, have you been to, met with? Well, I think uh, I've met with uh, 13 or 14 of the candidates, and of course my goal was to try to meet with them personally, mm -hmm. not just attend events, and I think we've been pretty successful in getting that job done. Uh, probably, you know, 1,600 miles of tra <laughs> traveling around the state. It's the first, first candidate I started meeting with, I went to three events in one mm -hmm. day. And I think, as you know, the, they schedule themselves in which they may have four or five events in one day. And in that particular case, I just track that candidate uh, through that process for that day. That's definitely a unique opportunity for sure. No question about it. We have Iowa polling that shows voters are more likely to vote for a candidate who is strong on skills. Do you see this reflected in the candidates' conversations? Well, it's not necessarily uh, a, you know, an issue that they're going to bring up. So many other issues take a priority, whether it's health care or infrastructure. Skills and technical training is not necessarily one that's rising to the surface. Now, what's interesting, however, is when I have the opportunity to pose that question to these candidates, remind them of the polling results that uh, you know, you've been able to generate, uh, not just in Iowa, but in other states. What we've discovered is the response from those candidates has been very, very positive in that regard. Uh, one candidate in particular said, Steve said, that's probably one of the most important questions that we need to be addressing in this campaign that we're not. So you have certainly plenty of anecdotal stories, um, having been with Kirkwood Community College for a long time, about how important skills is to the Iowan community, to employers as well as to workers. But then we also have the polling data. When you talk with candidates, is there one or the other that you find more compelling? Is it a combination? Sort of how do you do the storytelling? I think the way in which I've tried to position these questions to the candidates, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I start by, first of all, introducing myself uh, as an elected member of the Board of Trustees of Kirkwood Community College, and then I uh, make the statement that the most, the biggest challenge that businesses and industry in Iowa and across the country are facing right now is the lack of an appropriately skilled workforce. These businesses are creating thousands of high-skilled, high-wage jobs across the state and across the country, and they can't find the skilled workers to fill them. Um, that becomes a national imperative, if you will. Mm -hmm. 
and again reminding them that historically the investments that our federal government makes uh, tends to be disproportionate in terms of the investments in traditional college degree programs as opposed to skills and technical training. The response I'm getting from the candidates is very, very strong. You know, a top-tier candidate putting both hands on my shoulders and saying, Steve, you can absolutely count on me to have my support as president to address that issue. They clearly understand the necessity of these kinds of investments as it relates to the national economy at this point in time. I mean, have you noticed at all sort of any arc, even in sort of, you've been to some candidate events over and over. I mean, are they picking up the skills piece at all? Or is it, is there still, do you still see it as some concrete work to be done in terms of making sure that we get skills elevated into their conversations? No, I think we still have work to do. Yeah. Um, however, I would say that some progress is being made. The fact that, uh, you know, six months ago, probably wouldn't, you know, hear this issue being addressed on an unprompted basis at all. Now starting to see it, not, not extensively, but at least in some cases. I think that's a step in the right direction. So let me ask you a question. You had mentioned, you know, they're talking about a lot of the things that we hear about regularly, you know, in the papers. They talk about um, health care. They talk about climate change. They talk about um, infrastructure. They talk about a range of things, but not necessarily skills. Um, clearly, there's an intersection between skills and all of those issues. Do you think there is opportunity to sort of elevate the skills conversation within those other issue areas? What do you think is the most promising strategy, or again, is it a combined strategy? Well, I think, I think a combined strategy is a proper way to go. Mm -hmm. When you look at some of those issues that you just raised, healthcare as an example, uh, tremendous uh, skill shortages in, in skilled nursing, direct care workforce, those kinds of issues. Uh, you look at uh, significant investments in dealing with the climate uh, change issues, tremendous amount of skilled workers are going to need it, and of course infrastructure, yeah. absolutely. And I think as my conversations with the candidates to some extent would sort of bear that out. You know, they're going to focus on kind of these hot button issues that are important to the electorate, but I think there's a understanding below that that you don't get those done without a meaningful investment in skills training to support the implementation. Uh, of those particular sure. issues. Is there a value to engaging um, with the state-based campaign staff um, in order to make inroads into campaigns? Yes, absolutely. And I've been able to do that in some, uh, in some specific instances. Mm -hmm. Had an opportunity to uh, have an extended conversation with uh, the state policy director for one of the candidates. That resulted in him getting me a personal meeting with that candidate. Mm -hmm prior to that candidate going out on a stage of 4,000 people. And I've had subsequent conversations with uh, campaign staff for, I think, three or four of the other candidates in which um, we've been able to provide them with specific information. You know, again, the polling information that the National Skills Coalition has prepared. So absolutely, but much like we would work with members of Congress, a lot of times it's going to be the staff that are going to be most attentive. So absolutely, in these campaigns, the same is true. That actually means that we could, they could start working with their state uh, campaign offices right now right. and try to do some education even before the candidates are campaigning hard in their own states. Absolutely. Those campaigns are very anxious to, mm -hmm. to hear from you know, the members of the public in those respective sure. states. So that's an, easy, that's an easy call and an easy contact to make. I want to thank you, Steve. Um, for your time here in Iowa and for this conversation. Uh, let's kick it back to Washington, D.C. and the 2020 Skill Summit. Great. Thanks to Jesse and Steve. So I want to pivot back to our panel now and talk about engagement in this election. Um, you know, as Steve mentioned, they've had candidates in their backyard for over a year and a level of access that is really unparalleled in, in the rest of the country. Um, Iowa's first in nation status not only means that the candidates are paying more attention, it means that the press is paying more attention to Iowa and lifting up the issues that are coming up in that state. And you know, as Tracy mentioned earlier, this has real equity and inclusion issues um, given the state's demographics. We're talking about an electorate that's a lot older than the rest of the country and that is 91% white. 
In addition to that, even within the state itself, there are equity and inclusion issues when it comes to whose voice is getting heard and who's being represented. African Americans are 3% of the population in Iowa, yet they represent 26% of those who are incarcerated, and Iowa is the only state in the nation with a lifetime ban on voting for people who have a felony. And so it's estimated that as many as 52,000 individuals were not able to participate last night in the caucuses. So the degree to which states like Iowa, New Hampshire are the focus of so much so early on in the election, it creates these challenges for other voices to be heard. And national organizations and state and local organizations have to really put a lot of time and effort into making sure that in these later states, and even in these early states, that their constituencies are, are getting heard. So, Given all of this and all these challenges, I want to talk about what your organizations are doing to support constituent engagement in general, and if there's particular things you're doing around skills as an issue within the election cycle as well, but really thinking about, and you know, this is what I think is, is great about Jesse's interview with Steve, is sort of brass tacks, how do you do it? How do you get in front of a candidate? How do you make your voice heard? How do you make sure you're even able to vote in the first place? So, um, Stephanie, let's talk with you about what your organization's doing to help your members engage. I have so many notes here, but I mean, ultimately, I think it's about empowering your constituents to know their own power and to tell their stories. I mean, you'd be surprised. You know, we're working with mayors and council members and reminding mayors that they have the power to share their story because the candidates are listening. Everyone's vote matters. And I think for us, it's about putting together um, you know, one-pagers and documents that tell the story, that provide the data to work with coalition partners and to provide that data and information together so that they can avoid it, so that it's always in their face. And so a couple different things, you know, we have a website for our agenda. It's called Leading Together, the 2020 Cities Agenda. As I mentioned, it's four topics and creating a skilled workforce is key to that. Um, so what do we do with it? We're providing our members um, with a social media toolkit. Um, Twitter, Instagram, you name it, is, is, is the name of the game these days in terms of visibility with candidates. Writing op-eds, providing them with um, sort of basic shell op-eds that they can write, but also that we would help them with. So uh, we had just had two mayors from Florida who are a Republican and a Democrat putting a local op-ed in a local Florida paper to show that these are issues that they care about and that they hope that the candidates will care about. That's really important. Um, we also are asking um, city council across the country to pass a resolution in support of our city's agenda. Um, we're working on a map to show um, not only the candidates, but also um, residents in each of these communities what their city leaders care about and what we're looking for in a presidential candidate. So again, sort of that groundswell of activity mm -hmm. so that it can't be ignored, so that we hear skills training more coming out of the voices of the candidates. Um, and then I think there's the other side of it, what, we, what we're trying to get the candidates to say to us. Um, we're asking each of the candidates to commit to our city's agenda over the next few months and weeks. Um, what does that look like? We're asking them to shoot a video to tell us how these issues are important to them. Um, so far, we have our first from Mayor from Mayor Pete. Um, you can find that on our website. But our hope is that you know all of the candidates will commit to these issues and tell us not just that they've committed, but sort of why they're important to them, um, so that we can elevate those issues for them. Of course, they commit. We can elevate their commitment, and we can talk about how skills are important to them. Um, we've also invited the candidates to our conference across the street in March, and our goal is that should they accept, they will each get a very specific question on each of our four, um, uh, four pillars of our agenda. So the candidates will be there, hopefully, on the main stage answering some real questions about um, skills development. Great. And, you know, we have a lot of folks here in the audience and in our podcast listening audience who are engaged in local advocacy. So if they wanted to take part in getting their city council to pass a resolution or to see your social media toolkit, where would they go to do that? How would they get involved? Sure. Um, well, they can go to the National League of Cities website, and there's a link to our Leading Together page and our website. But I think ultimately, um, their council members and their mayors are their elected officials just as much as the President of the United States will mm -hmm. be. And so they should feel empowered to say to their council members, we want you to make this a priority, and we hope that you will support these resolutions. We hope that you will encourage the President to talk about these things. Not to bring it back to my kids again, but I sat with my seven-year-old's class, and I said, 
We're going to write letters to the President of the United States to tell them what's most important to us in our community. And I think every American needs to sort of feel that empowerment to talk to their elected officials about that. Great. So Tracy, what is the National Urban League doing to support voting, engagement, all of the above? Uh, all the things you're talking about actually give me a headache every day because we're doing so much, <laughs> honestly. Uh, so first, uh, I, I have to lift up my uh, president and CEO, Mark Morial, who's incomparable in what he does. And, and one of the things that he's done is that he's made himself personally available to any of the candidates who want to dive deeper into any of these issues. Um, for example, when we talk about skills development, we don't often talk about access to tools to advance skills development. So we have 5G that's coming up, and folks are talking about that, but we're not talking about broadband, which is um, a lot of low-income communities don't even have access to the internet themselves. Uh, we talk about uh, how do we help individuals have access to internet outside of the home, because if they don't have broadband at home, they're reliant on public access to Wi-Fi, and that makes it very difficult to do things such as do e-learning for skill development itself. Two, uh, we too also have an annual conference, uh, and we've invited the, con the candidates to come and present. Last year, uh, we, it was held in Indianapolis, and I believe we had five or six of the candidates come and present uh, in front of an, an audience of about 20,000 individuals. So that's a really great way for them to hear and connect with potential voters. Um, we also saw in our review, uh, every year we release the state of black America, and we noticed last year we did an analysis on um, external voter interference for voter uh, suppression through Russian bots, and that they actually targeted the African American community online specifically in order to suppress and feed misinformation, and actually, and which it did impact voter participation in the last election. So, uh, the Urban League is now beginning to formulate its own initiative called Our Vote Matters, and that's intentionally meant to help. Uh, share trusted information, uh, speak to issues that are important to the African-American community, understand where and how to vote, and just to be well-versed on the issue so that they can best advocate themselves at the polls. Great. Brian, how about you? What are you guys doing? Sure. Uh, I guess to summarize it, it's sort of a three-part. I mean, yes, we're doing sort of candidate questionnaires and sort of information to educate mm -hmm. our members about sort of, you know, here's where all the candidates stand and, you know, here's a here's the issues that are important to the, the, the construction industry and here's where the candidates end on the issues. But really, I think the three parts of our strategy are sort of collecting data, educating our members, and getting the word out to as many people as possible. And let me just explain. One is we want to actually measure the scope and, more important, the impact of sort of skilled worker shortages in the construction industry, right? We know that 81% of our member firms are having a hard time finding workers. What does that mean? How does it break down into the 358 metro areas that where we track construction employment? And how many of those metro areas would have added more construction jobs if there were more, more skilled folks were available? Uh, and then what are the impacts on the development of infrastructure, the development of developments if it, of those worker shortages? We know a quarter of our firms aren't bidding on projects. There's not enough people to, to, to do the work. We know that many of our firms are putting in bids with slower schedules because they just can't rely on having the electrician show up on time, the HVAC people show up on time because they're experiencing the same skilled shortages. And they know that when they're, they're putting their bids in, they're charging more because they have to pay more for labor or because they have to buy technology to, to supplement the labor they have currently available because they can't hire more folks. Uh, so that's collection of data. And then we're educating our members. We're making sure that our members know this information and they know how to reach out and connect, not just with presidential candidates, but remember, we've got every member of Congress up for re-election and we've got a large chunk of the Senate up for re-election, right? So we are uh, working with our member firms to bring through, I'm not sure which one is lowercase m and m. Uh, for us, I guess our members would be uppercase m and members of Congress would be lowercase m, but members of Congress to our, our members' construction projects having them see what our members do, having them talk to the, the craft workers who do the work so they can understand what kind of quality of life we're talking about, what are the challenges they're facing, what are the obstacles to getting other folks into those industries. We were just out in, in Western Kentucky and Paducah sort of taking a member of Congress through, actually, ironically, a new CTE uh, uh, high school annex that's being built and turned that into a whole forum on workforce development. Uh, we're also out educating the media on almost a daily basis. After this, I fly up to Rochester, which if anyone here is from that part of the world, third fastest growing construction job market in the country. Uh, we, our suspicion is that there hasn't been a ton of great news, but maybe I'm going to go find out in Rochester in a while. So we're, we, we take that as an opportunity to educate the local media and elected officials about the fact that, hey, 
construction is contributing to your local economy, but if we don't have enough investment in skilled work in skilled training, then we're not going to have enough skilled workers to do the work and earn the incomes that firms are paying, right? And that means you can't build that new stadium or that new highway or that new school building, uh, or at least not for the amount that you had budgeted. Uh, so data, educating our members, and then just making sure they know that they can reach out and, and invite folks. And our members have an invaluable asset to any politician running for office, which is an enormous project full of really cool visuals and a bunch of people in hard hats that every politician wants to be photographed with, right? right? You know, I mean, it's not like going to other parts of the country where they hide the workers. Here, every politician wants to be surrounded by a bunch of people with a hard hat. And so we're going to take advantage of that and make sure that that's an opportunity for us to uh, educate elected officials about the value of the career path that is construction and why we need skills training to get them there. Great. Well, and hopefully everybody will take the opportunity to visit the websites of all of our speakers to see the resources that are available. I also want to put a plug in for the resources that we have available for folks at National Skills Coalition. Steve, in his uh, interview, talked about going around and giving materials to all the, the candidates he met with. You can access fact sheets, polling fact sheets, lots of information, very sort of accessible, digestible information about skills training that you can use for candidate education when they do come to your state or your city um, on the Voices for Skills website. Voicesforskills.org, go to the mission page. The other uh, opportunity I want to share with folks, we have to, you know, as a field kind of push from all directions to try to get this issue elevated in the election cycle. And one of the big places, the high profile places where this happens is in debates. And there's a lot of debates, as you know. Um, there's been a lot, there's a lot more planned. And so we started a petition this past fall to ask debate moderators to ask about skills. We're up to, I think, 12,000 uh, folks who've signed that petition. We keep building the signatures on that, right? You know, the week or two before the debate, Iobami, he sends that petition to the debate moderators so they can see what a surge of support there is that folks, you know, in their viewing audience want to hear this question asked. So go to Voices for Skills, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, you'll be able to access that petition. All right, so once again, um, as folks know, we are recording this podcast live at the 2020 Skills Summit, and I am sure there are a lot of folks here with questions for our panelists about the issues we've talked about today, how you can get involved in your communities in lifting up these issues. So why don't we go now to our mic runners and open up for questions. Good morning. Um, I was taken by, by the way, great, great plenary session. I really appreciated all of your informed perspectives. But there was a, 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 a missed opportunity to talk about um, our older workers. And as many as you know, uh, the, the trend in, from a workforce perspective suggests that older workers will become the largest single segment of the US workforce by 2025. To what extent um, do you feel that ought to be a policy priority, and how does it inform some of your engagement strategies so that this important issue um, is not lost? Everyone's looking at me. Um, no, I can go through. Crazy, why don't you? Yes, I can do that. So, yeah, thank you for that opportunity because, in the interest of time, I cut out, edited out that part to talk about the programs that we do have. We have been 30-year partners with the Department of Labor for the uh, for the CSEP program. We call it the Mature Workers Program. And that is actually designed to support those who are uh, 55 and older who are still in the workforce and still want to be uh, meaningfully engaged in the workforce itself. Uh, we do know that CSEP for the past three years has been on the chopping block. Um, it has been a, a bargaining chip between this administration and CSEP proponents itself. And so we're getting word from the Department of Labor that they are invested in this constituency as well. And we join them as allies and partners in that, and not only continuing CSEP, but funding it at normal or sane levels that we need them to be. So that's what we do. From the construction industry's point of view, you know, like a lot of other industries, you, you know, we are um, facing the same demographic, I'm not sure, challenges or opportunities depending on your point of view. The average age of construction worker, this sort of data varies, but someone, it's somewhere in the 40s right now. And so we've got, um, uh, for lack of a better word, an aging workforce that we are uh, looking at. How, what can we do to, frankly, uh, keep those folks engaged? in meaningful ways in, in construction activities for as long as possible, in part because 
There's just not a lot of folks behind them to fill those positions, and in part because they have an invaluable set of skills and experiences that you just can't replace. So we're looking at how, this is a little bit off of sort of, you know, what we're asking for from Congress, but how does technology sort of supplement the, the, or extend the, 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 the fitness level and health and safety of older workers? We, we see a lot more of this kind of cool sci-fi stuff, the exoskeleton kits uh, that, that workers can wear so that if they're doing repetitive motions, if they're working with like a jackhammer, for example, that they can, um, they can operate it in a way that they remain safe and healthy. Uh, so, in terms of folks who are older part of the workforce who aren't currently working in construction, we, we'd be anxious to have them in, in one of two ways. I mean, we're still looking for folks who um, would love to, to learn and embrace a career in construction, even at sort of the sort of tail end of their career. And the second thing is, if you have if those construction skills, don't necessarily want to go back into the crafts and work on a construction site, let's explore opportunities to get you into the classroom. Because one of the challenges that our workforce shortages create is, let's say we got more funding for CTE and we got a lot more uh, sort of construction-focused programs in high schools, who's going to teach those programs? Mm. Construction, unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, unfortunately, as someone who's married to a teacher, construction pays better than teaching. And so it's really hard to get someone who's got construction skills to then go get certified and become a teacher. Right, so it, there's a great opportunity if you're not looking to sort of the, to be out on a job site every day, but you have those skills and you want to share them. Let's get you into the into the teaching programs, and whether that's K through 12 or sort of an easier way to do it is many community colleges have great construction-focused programs that work with local high schools, but may not necessarily require the rules changed by state may not require those teachers to be sort of fully certified. So there are a lot of opportunities to come in and work in the crafts or come in. A lot of our construction firm members are building um, training facilities in their warehouse spaces where they have some of their senior staff actually teaching young folks because they're not getting those skills in education. So they're just bringing them in with less experience and training them. So there are many opportunities to do the craft work to teach it at construction firms or to teach it at the school or community college level. So it's a great point, and I'm sorry I didn't bring it up before. That's a very robust answer. I would just say, I think for cities, we're thinking about the whole spectrum of the worker because how can you not if you're thinking about the jobs and the skills gaps within your community? Um, so yes, older Americans, but also, you know, the youngest Americans, you have, you know, childcare workers and daycare workers who, by the way, aren't paid very well and are charged with taking care of our youngest children, sort of how are we thinking about sort of how they're compensated, how they're trained, and sort of like how they have a career ladder. So I think for us, it's that full range of the spectrum and making sure we're filling those jobs. All right, great. Other questions from our audience? Hi, I'm from the great state of Iowa. I get everybody wants to bash Iowa this morning. I don't blame you for that. Um, and my question to you is, I know there are a lot of very successful state programs that are addressing the skills gap. And I think one of the things that we need to be talking about, which I haven't heard yet, is how can we get the feds to give us more discretion so that we can continue and scale the successful programs that I know are being created all around the states, not just Iowa. <laughs> Well, so I'm betting Stephanie has something to say about local control. I was going to say not to the states, to the cities, but that's a whole different thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think part of our message is making sure that funds make it to the local area because that's where the rubber meets the road, really. I mean, not every state is different. Every community within that state is different. And so how are you as a mayor or a council member going to build programs or design services that meet the needs of your residents without that flexibility. So it's absolutely a part of what we're asking for. I think some of the challenges are there are funding mechanisms and programs that exist that Congress has passed that would be hard for them to change. So you need to be able to tell them why it's important to change it. You know, I can't tell you how many times you have to meet with an office to have them actually hear you to then think about how that might be changed. And so I think together we need to make sure that that's heard because I agree with you. You know, you don't want funds that go to a state or to wherever and sit in a coffer and not be used because the people who have received it don't know how it should be used properly. And you can't wait for multiple years for a plan to be made when everyone on the ground could tell you tomorrow or yesterday how those funds should be spent. So I think it's a really important part of the conversation. Uh, I would say that one of the, the many f federal grants that we've uh, operated as a National Urban League, we really did appreciate the Ready to Work grant. Mm -hmm. And for those that may or may not know, it was H-1B funded, 
and it allowed, um, yeah, great, thanks, I'm right there. Uh, because it did allow for some standardization, but it actually encouraged for there to be customization. And there was a ton of flexibility that went in, that you could design for your particular program. So for us, we uh, were able to address issues such as not everyone has the time or resources to go through the higher education system. They can't give year, two years, wait for their certification. So we were able to partner with local small businesses that had their own training programs that were able to condense it. Um, we were able to provide scholarships for individuals through this grant uh, to cover incidentals such as childcare or transportation or uniforms. Um, and then also uh, through it, we were able to customize on the job training because not everybody has access or not everyone can literally afford unpaid internships so that you can get job um, work experience. So I would say, you know, if you can, if there's an opportunity to champion that or at least champion that structure because it was just one small opportunity that we ran with it and it did really well, but it has since been uh, defunded or has not been refunded. And so I would suggest that maybe engage in that conversation as you're meeting with your representatives and or just read about H-1B, and I'm sorry, it's called Ready to Work H-1B. One of the challenges with federal funding is that uh, folks at the federal level tend to equate sort of you know, strict limits on how the money can be used with accountability, right? But those are two separate things. And so as you're having your meetings, We've long championed greater flexibility in things like the Perkins Act and things like WIOA because um, you, you know every labor market is slightly different, every state is slightly different, the needs are different, uh, and um, so when you're having those conversations, you really want to stress the need. And remember that most of 99 to 100 percent of the staffers you're going to be meeting with or chatting with if you're not speaking with a member of Congress. Guess how they got to that job? They went through a four-year college and then they ended up getting a job in an office, right? So you're gonna have, we've spent a lot of time, because we spent a lot of time on the Hill talking about these issues, like, like you guys do. Uh, we've spent a lot of time explaining to the staffers exactly what we're talking about and why these are sort of good career paths and what's needed, because they don't necessarily come from that environment. They're well-intended, they've got their hearts in the right places, they're trying to do the right thing, but they may not sort of see it from the same vantage point. And by the way, I'm from Florida, so I'm not going to make fun of Iowa when it comes to elections. So. I want to know where she caucused. <laughs> yeah. and, and one thing I would just add, I mean, I think this is a fantastic point to raise just in the context of as you're thinking about, as candidates are coming through your state, what's, what's the best way to have an impact? Yes, we all have fact sheets and resources, polling data that you can share with them. But at the end of the day, the most impactful thing you can do to sort of stick something into the candidate's brain that they're gonna carry with them is tell them what you're doing at the local level, why it's working, and who has benefited from it. Whether it's a policy change at the state level, I mean, that's one of the things Steve was talking about in Iowa with all the, the candidates was things like Iowa's gap tuition assistance program, the PACE program, all the things that they have done around state policy that's really unique but that, you know, elected officials at the federal level aren't always paying attention to sort of what's happening at the local level. And so this is just, you know, both in your Hill meetings tomorrow for those of you here who are here for that, but also everybody here, everybody in the podcast audience, tell your story, get out in front of the candidates. It's, it's really, it is such a crucial part of elevating skills as, you know, a tier one issue in the context of this election cycle. So we are now out of time, and I want to thank um, you all so much for being here, and thank you to Stephanie, to Tracy, and to Brian, um, all of you for joining us. I want to thank Steve Oval at Kirkwood Community College, Jesse Leslie, and Iobama Ulugbamiga on our staff. Thank you to our great crowd here at the 2020 Skills Summit, who is doing the hard work on the ground of creating opportunities for America's workers in our communities. Um, thank you for being a part of episode one of the Skilled America podcast. You were here for it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to Stephanie, Tracy, and Brian for joining us in D.C. for the 2020 Skills Summit. You can read more about the National League of Cities at nlc.org, the National Urban League at nul.org, and the Associated General Contractors of America at agc.org. I'm Rachel Unruh. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you can join us next time for another in-depth look at Skilled America. Bye, everyone. Bye.